It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 7th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The threatened closure of the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan was raised once again in the Dáil yesterday with Sinn Féin asking government to invest in Navan. Can I ask you, the government and the Minister for Health, to put, to put the resources and st- stop constantly cutting and chipping away at services in Navan Hospital and protect and enhance services that are already there. And you know what, the emergency situation around the country, it makes sense to do it. Johnny Girk, Minister Michael McGrath, gave this response to him on behalf of the government. Uh, I can assure you that the government has provided the resources to the HSC uh, to address uh, this issue. There will be no change to the services provided at Our Lady's Hospital in Avon until such time as the HSC can establish that Our Lady of Lourdes Drogheda and Connolly Hospital Blanchardstown have the extra capacity uh, to deal with the inevitable increase in presenting patients. Um, no decision regarding the HSC's proposal for the transition of the ED at Navin has been agreed by Minister Donnelly uh, or the government at this point. Now, that response from government might come as a relief to some, but it has to be said the government's credibility on this issue has come into question this week with hospital staff telling local politicians how the minister has been trying to manage this story. Uh, Jerry McEntee said very clearly, we asked why had not local consultation taken place at any stage? And he very clearly said, and he was quite emphatic in how he said it, was that... Minister Donnelly had instructed that the management team in the hospital were not to engage with local politicians. The chair of Meath County Council, Nick Killian, there, telling me yesterday a really dramatic claim about Stephen Donnelly gagging officials. Could it be true? Could the minister be spinning this at a time that the HSE wants to close the emergency department in Navan? Is Minister Stephen Donnelly managing the story. We were instructed by the minister that we were not to engage with the local community until we had a meeting with the local politicians last Monday. Now that meeting was cancelled four times over the last seven months. And during that time, we were told we were not to engage with the local community by the Minister for Health. Did the Minister I say why? I don't, no, I didn't. We None of us could understand it. 
But we were instructed clearly that we were not to engage with the local community until we had a meeting with the local politicians. That's the clinical director in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan, Jerry McEntee, speaking to me yesterday. Let's speak uh, to Sinn Féin TD for Me the West, Johnny Girk, who we heard at the top of the programme raising the hospital in the Dáil yesterday. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. What do you make of this revelation that Stephen Donnelly has been spinning this story? Michael, um Revelation about um, Jerry McEntee um, not uh, speaking to um, locals. That came up, Michael, at that meeting that the Rectors members had with the HSE management in, in back in early uh, June or whenever it was. Um, so uh, Thomas Bourne asked the question, why is the HSE, which was an unbelievable question to even ask, why is the HSE not selling this story better to the public about closing the emergency department. And Jerry McEntee at that meeting said exactly what he said uh, yesterday to you, Michael. He said, he looked over at Stephen Donnelly and he said, um, we've been told not to comment on it. But um, that that came from Thomas Bourne uh, asking a question that I thought myself was unbelievable. He didn't ask uh, what's better for the people in Mead. He didn't ask what's better for Navan Hospital. He didn't ask what's better for Our Lady of Lourdes and Drahada. He asked, why is the HSE not selling this better to the public? And that was the response from Jerry McEntee. So that, that didn't happen in the last few days, Michael. That happened um, a couple of months ago. Well, that sounds very unfair now, it has to be said, uh, because uh, I take it you heard from the HSE uh, and would have understood what they believed to be best for Navin, to be best for the hospital, to be best for the people who are served by the hospital because they believe the hospital is not serving them well now and that some are at risk of death. So on that understanding, I take it Minister Byrne asked that question, which was, why aren't you explaining this to people? Uh, the response seems to have been that uh, Stephen Donnelly told them not to. Yeah, that, that's that's the response, Michael, and that's what uh, Jerry McEntee said on the day we met the um, the HSE um, management um, th- that day in Dublin, and that was the answer. But Michael. do you agree with the way I put it? Because it sounded to me like you were political point scoring unfairly against Thomas Byrne there. No, I believe Thomas Byrne, um, um, Michael, was the one of the TDs that has not um, fought the corner for um, retaining emergency services in Avon Hospital. I have no problem saying that, Michael. And I, and I know I you don't. I, I know you don't, but I'm going to ask you the same question. Uh, when you said that he asked the HSE why they were not trying to explain their position, you were claiming that he was letting the people of Meath down. That was political point scoring. Uh, I, I don't think that's gone over the heads of people this morning, Johnny. Uh, I think that was very unfair. Uh, do you accept that? I don't, Michael. Uh, I said it, Michael, and I mean it, Michael. If you, uh, Thomas Byrne is the one person, Michael, of all the six T's in Mead. Did you, did you understand what the HSE were saying to you when you met with them? Did you understand that they were saying that the emergency department should close because they be- believed it wasn't safe? Yeah, but Michael, why is it not safe? Did you Michael? believe that, though? No, 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 no. Stay with the, 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 this now, because you've made a political charge, which, I, I, to be honest with you, I found offensive, because I, I think this, support, this issue is so important to people that nobody wants it to be turned into a political football. And I, I believed within 10 seconds of coming on the radio this morning, you turned it into a political football. So I'm going to stay with this issue now about that political charge you made against Thomas Byrne. You, did you understand what the HSE was saying to you, that they believed that the emergency department was unsafe. 
Michael, I answered the question you asked me, Mike. You asked did me. Did you Michael, believe? I, did you understand? Second, Michael. Did you understand? No, I, did you understand the HSE believed it was unsafe? Michael, that's the HSE position. Michael, yes, because and, I, and, because and when Thomas Byrne asked them why they weren't explaining that position, do you think he understood it? No, Michael, I believe Thomas Byrne asked that question that uh, they were asking the HSC to explain it better so as they could close the emergency department in Avon. That's why I believe he asked that question, Michael. And, and Michael, you asked me, Michael, what, what, how did uh, Jerry McIntyre say that he was gagged from Civic? That's how that came about, Michael. It came about at that meeting. That's, that's what I'm well, asking. Well, it came I'm about before that meeting because Stephen Donnelly told him and others not to speak uh, to local politicians or local media, I think, until after that meeting. Michael, that's the first time that it came up, in my opinion, was at that meeting with the Oireachtas members, with the HSE management. That's where that question was asked by Thomas Byrne. That's the answer Jerry McEntee gave. I answered the question and you the asked day, me, and the day, And the day afterwards, Jerry McEntee was on this programme, I believe. Yeah, he, he, well, yeah. I don't know if he was, Michael, but you, you, what you said, Michael, was that you were talking to Nick Killeen, and it looked to me like that was the first time that it came out. But it didn't come out, Michael. It came out at that meeting that we had with Oireachtas well, members. The, well, the first I heard of it was the day before when Nick Killeen said it to LMFM yeah. News. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it, it didn't, Michael. It came out at that meeting with the Oireachtas members at the H, with the, with the well, HSC sta- management. It stayed behind closed doors. I don't remember anybody talking about it. Well, they might have been talking about it, Michael, but that's yeah. the first time I heard about it, and that's where it came out. Yeah, well, it, it, well, it, out, it didn't Michael, come out because it was a private meeting. Well, Michael, that's where it was it, up to you. It was, it was up yeah. to you or others to bring it out. Okay, Michael, it didn't come out, but that's where it was yeah, mentioned. I don't, I don't know if you realise people were outraged when they heard that yesterday on LMFM because you didn't bring it out. Mm. Nobody at that meeting brought it out. People were on to us saying, "Who does the minister think he is? We want the information. We want to weigh up the pros and cons. We want to make a, a decision ourselves so we can decide to campaign for the hospital or not to campaign for the hospital. People need to make their arguments in an honest, transparent way. That's fair enough, Michael, but that's where it came out, Michael, was at that meeting. It didn't come out. Okay, if it didn't come out, Michael, but that's where it was mentioned first, Michael, at that meeting. There was lots of other things that came out of that meeting that we talked about. So you and Darren O'Rourke and Patrick Tobin and the government representatives were all in cahoots with Stephen Donnelly about this gagging order. Michael, there was nobody in cahoots with anybody, Michael, and I don't believe in gagging anybody. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. Everybody's entitled to say what they believe. Well, then you didn't see the significance of it. Certainly not in the same light that I see it. For a minister to be managing a story like this, when people are wondering what's going on, and the minister is telling the people who are on the coalface not to talk about it, I think that's pretty significant. But that obviously wasn't the feeling in that room. Michael, but Jerry McEntee, the first time he mentioned it on your radio programme was uh, the other day. Yeah, it was the first time he was asked about it because Nick Killian told us about it. Yeah, but we weren't asked about it, Michael. If we were, we would have said it. Um, so that's where that's where it came up, Michael. There's no there's no um, uh, denying it or anything, Michael. That's where it came up first, and that's what I done. I answered the question that you asked me, and nothing more. Right, uh, and um, how do you feel about it? How do you how do you feel about health officials being told not to speak to local politicians and not to speak to media, which is another way of saying do not speak to the people in Navan. Do not speak to the people who use the hospital in Navan. Michael, nobody believes in gagging anybody. Everybody should be entitled to have their say, speak whatever they have to say, and, and uh, one argues for it, one argues against it, and we all have a different opinion. So everybody should be entitled to that, Michael. And there's nobody saying gag anybody, in my opinion, or I shouldn't be saying it, or you shouldn't be saying it, or the HSE shouldn't be saying it, or there should be nobody saying it. We're all here for the good of Navin Hospital and the people in Mead. There, there's, there's 
when, when, when the small hospital framework uh, was announced 10 years ago, Michael, or whenever it was, you have 40,000 more people in need today. So that's what we need to be talking about. And that's what we, that's what we should be talking about and trying to retain services in the hospital. So you don't think the minister was gagging uh, the staff in the hospital? I believe he, he, it looks like he was gagging the staff, but I don't agree with it, Michael. Right. I don't agree with it. Mm. Okay. But, 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 but that's the situation. Well, Michael, it, do you think it that's appropriate? Like was, sorry, oh, no, I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think, as I said to you several times, Michael, and I'll say it again, I don't think anybody should be gagged. Everybody's entitled to their opinion, whether you agree with it or you don't agree with it. They're all entitled. So why to their didn't opinion. you say something about it? Why, why did you just go, oh, okay, right, and not come out and uh, mention it? Michael, we've spoke about this for months. We've spoke about everything to come up with the meeting on the 30th of June. Uh, we, the, the, the biggest and most important thing to come out of that meeting... Yeah, the, the, me- the, meeting, that, the oh. meeting that happened on the 30th of June should have been attended by local media. Local media weren't invited. Do you think that was Stephen Donnelly spinning it? Michael, you're going on about Stephen Donnelly on morning. I can't speak for Stephen Donnelly, Michael. I can't speak for Stephen Don. I don't believe, Michael, that the, me- the media should have been invited to it. Everybody should have been invited. To it. There shouldn't be anybody um, gagged or anybody from, from speaking up, whether they're for or against something. That, that, that's wrong. Well, do you th- I'm sure you don't think it's wrong to speak about Stephen Donnelly, given that Stephen Donnelly is uh, the Minister for Health, and the Minister for Health obviously has the final say on this, and he's put a, a pause on it for the moment. Michael, I spoke to Stephen Donnelly myself yesterday. I asked him, was there any time frame for when this was going to happen? He, he, he said there isn't. I asked him to look at the option of retaining and enhancing services at Navin Hospital to give it serious consideration. He said all options would be looking at. These are the issues that I think we should be talking about and not, and not gagging anybody or talking down anybody or anything like that. All right, so there's no point then in protesting on Saturday? I think, Michael, that the protest on Saturday is hugely important. I think it will be the biggest protest that was ever held in Navan, and I think it is very, very important. And I think this decision, with the right pressure, this decision could be reversed. Right. Uh, and what's the alternative? Well, there's, there's, there's no alternative, Michael. Haven't you, haven't you heard that from the 17 consultants in Drogheda that they can't cope? Have we heard from University Hospital Limerick that twi- average waiting time from January to May is, is 23 hours? Like, should they, these other places can't cope, Michael. Yeah. So the alternative is to... Um, but didn't you hear Jerry McEntee? Didn't you hear Jerry McEntee yesterday say, look, you're all just playing politics with this and you're putting people's lives at risk? Let me, let me, let me read you um, the words of a doctor. They're talking about downgrading Nav and A&E. It's already happened. They, they've taken out surgery. They've done their best to make it unsafe for them to use the excuse to close it. Monaghan, they did the same in Monaghan. You can talk to any of those doctors and ask them if this has made their patients safer. They won't say yes. That's the words of a doctor, Michael. What's the name of the doctor? Dr. McMinimum. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. Yeah, that's the uh, chair of the Northeast Doctor on Call. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and there's lots of doctors, uh, uh, and there's different opinions on it. Did you hear what Jerry McEntee had to say yesterday about the current situation, which I think probably Seamus McMenamin outlined fairly accurately there in terms of how services have been taken out of the hospital? But given the current situation in the hospital, didn't you hear Jerry McEntee say the lot of you are just playing politics with this, uh, and your political games could result in an unnecessary death? Michael. 
the political games Jerry McIntyre is talking about has kept the emergency department in Avon open for the last 10 years. Uh, so I don't think that has caused anybody's death. It, 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 well, it, he, it he's has, saying it that it could, life. and I think it was very clear that you were playing political games at the start of this thing, uh, making nonsense allegations against Thomas Byrne for political gain, uh, using the hospital for political gain. Michael, it was the truth. It, it was no, truth. it wasn't. My, I think, my, my, I think, I think my, anybody my, listening would know it was the truth, that he, he, what you said was not true, was not accurate, that you said that he, he was asking the HSE to go out and sell closing down the emergency department when he wasn't, when you had explained that what he had said was that the HSE had said they believe it's unsafe for it to remain open, and he was saying, well, why don't you communicate that if that's what you believe? No, Michael. I told you. I told you before, Michael, and I'll tell you again for the tenth time. What he said was, Michael, that they need to come out and sell it. The HSE need to come out and sell their their plans to close the hospital better to the public. That's what he said, Michael. That's what he meant. If you don't like it, Michael, that's fine. All right. Well, we'll ask him if that's what he said uh, in a moment because uh, the minister will be with us uh, after the break. So thank you indeed uh, for the moment, Johnny, for joining us on the program this morning. Sinn Fein TD for Mead West, Johnny Gurk. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's uh, speak uh, to Minister Thomas Byrne and see if we can clear up uh, this issue that uh, Johnny Gurk raised us at the beginning of uh, the programme. Good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Johnny Gurk said that at the meeting... Uh, that uh, the Minister organised with himself, the HSE and all of uh, the local TDs, including yourself, that at that meeting it was explained to you that the HSE feel that the emergency department in Navan should close because it's not safe and that you asked them why they weren't communicating that if that's how they felt. And then he went on to say that in actual fact, what you had said was that you want the emergency department to close down and that they should be out selling the reasons for closing it down. Uh, Which was it, Minister? That's complete bullshit, uh, if I may say a word like that on the radio. And Johnny Gurk knows that. Um, Those TDs know what they heard in that room. I know what Jerry McEntee has been saying to me since last September. If anyone listening to this programme was critically in bed, would they listen to Johnny Gurk and Pallor Tobin or would they listen to Jerry McEntee? Now, they would listen to Jerry McEntee, and I have taken that view consistently throughout this particular process. If a senior doctor is telling me that people's lives are at risk, who the hell am I or any other TD with no medical qualifications to contradict them? And this thing about Navin Hospital closing, Michael, it's bullshit and the nonsense has to stop. We've got to make sure that this is done properly, that people's lives are saved, that the extra 200 people that are working in Navin Hospital over the last number of years, so that figure will be increased, that the number of people using Navin Hospital, which has increased, will increase again, that the money invested in it will increase again, because it's increased over the last number of years, that the 24-bed rehabilitation unit, which is due to open, will open, I suspect, this month, that we'll see improvement after improvement in Navin Hospital. And this thing about treachery, we've heard words like traitor, it has to stop and people have to... Think of the science. Okay, but the emergency the, the emergency department is closing, Minister. That's that's what the HSE wants to achieve, and they say with very good reason because they don't want people to have poor poorer outcomes or uh, to die unnecessarily, uh, and they are the arguments. Uh, and um, what you have said is true because in tandem with closing the emergency department, the intention is to build up the hospital in other respects. Uh, but, but also, also, but, we were told by the HSE we have to hold them to this. 
Yeah, but you, 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 you were making those points. You were making those points uh, long before that meeting um, that took Michael, place. Michael, unlike the opposition, team, and, and I rang Jerry McAtee. And I know. I just, time. just let I me put. For not let him. me, let me just put the question to you. And you quoted Jerry McAtee many times on this program, saying uh, you've spoken to Jerry McEntee, I know he wants to speak to local media, I know he wants to explain this, uh, and he has very good reason, and I, I'm listening to him and concerned. You made all those points. Uh, but Jerry McEntee didn't speak to us. Jerry McEntee didn't speak yeah. to the local politicians, the councillors, uh, because he was gagged by the minister. Well, I, I've checked this out, and look, as you know, I was, and I think I said this on the show as well, I was very keen for, for HSE to go on the radio uh, to talk about this, and by that I meant the scientists and the doctors. Now, the reason that they didn't, and they were told not to, is because there was, I think, a feeling that they should meet the TDs first. And again, we had a lot of debate over this meeting with TDs. When would it happen? And it was cancelled a number of times. It happened in June. And quite frankly, Who Michael... Who felt like that? I think the Minister for Health felt like that. Yeah, well, 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 do you think he was right? Uh, because when, the, when, when uh, the clinicians speak to LMFM or the Mead Chronicle, they're speaking to the people of uh, the county. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, there's several ways of doing that, uh, and the, uh, through the TDs is another way. But then we see Stephen Donnelly on RTE or News Talk and Paul Reid on RTE or News Talk. Nobody comes to Navin, nobody speaks to the media, uh, and they're off issuing out statements uh, in Dublin. In fact, yesterday, uh, Stephen Donnelly ignored our question about gagging local uh, clinicians in Our Lady's Hospital. There's been no response. Where's, where, how could anybody listening to us have confidence in the Minister for Health on this issue? Has he any interest in it? When he spoke about it in the Dáil, he spoke about Lachlanstown for more than half of his contribution. Well, what I would say is on that, it, it, that was the reason given that they wanted to wait till we met the TDs. And there was a lot of rows over, in fact, it was complained at one stage that I had spoken to people in Navin Hospital and why, why did other TDs not do this? So there was a meeting with Stephen Donnelly that I had. Why were we not all invited? So they decided to do it this way, for better or for worse. But quite frankly, Michael, I think you'll agree with this. Since that meeting with TDs, Jerry McEntee and other HSE figures have been on the air almost constantly. Yes. And they've given huge amounts of their time to explain this position to the public. And I, I very much welcome that. And I welcome that people are hearing uh, the real side of this. And not just these words from of treachery we got from A2, yeah. of all sorts of other words. Okay. Why has Stephen Donnelly not spoken to local media? Uh, I mean, well, he well, wants to close the emergency department. Uh, it's a question of, of when and how to do it safely. Uh, but he, he is obviously bought into the idea that Navin isn't safe uh, uh, and he will close it uh, or he will allow let, the let HSE be because he's really, usurped the authority of the HSE as it stands. Uh, but he's, uh, And the HSE are telling us the minister has put lives, local lives, at risk. Uh, but he's not here to explain it. Well, look, that's a question Stephen will have to ask, answer himself. I'm very, I'm more than happy. Well, we did ask him and he said, we did ask him and a spokesperson for him said he's too busy to talk to LMFM. But but this is a minister who's putting local lives at risk according to the medical expertise and he won't speak to the local people. Well, look, I mean, I can certainly take that up uh, on your behalf, but I I certainly could never be accused of that. I I would go on. No, I'm not accusing you, but this is is a government minister. He's a Fianna Fáil TD. Yeah, and I, I'll certainly take that back. Uh, I think we need to explain this as best as possible. I think that's probably best done by the doctors and the scientists, quite frankly. But but yes, with the political responsibility as well, I accept that. But, but uh, the doctors, that's the other thing. The doctors are telling us he's playing politics with lives. Well, the, the situation is this. I mean, at the meeting, I was the one who asked about capacity in the Lourdes. 
And the, the response that I got to that question was deeply un- unsatisfactory to me as someone who has been saying, let's, let's listen mm. to the science. And we've read much of the letter from the 17 doctors yeah, on the yeah. programme for people to hear. But, but uh, quite frankly, at that meeting, we were told that th- there was no issue with Drogheda, that it was agreed in principle and it would be done, but it, it didn't seem to me to be solid. And I, I really questioned it then, and I can't think I came in the show the following day and said that. Mm. Um, so we've deep concerns about that. The minister's working uh, with the HSE on that, and that's why this hasn't happened yet, because we, quite frankly, I don't want to be coming on your show in six months' time and we have a Limerick situation. I want to be coming on your show and saying that a huge proportion of Navin uh, A&E patients are still using it. Okay. So this, whether it's minor injuries or whether it's medical assessment units, and how do we get that uh, as accessible as possible? And they're the issues that Stephen Donnelly is working on at the moment, that you could go to this MAU, I hope, without a doctor's letter, although a huge proportion of people already go to Navin ED yeah. with a doctor's letter at the moment. Do you believe... They will all still be going there. Do you, do you believe that Helen McIntyre should bring 2,000 Gardaí to County Meath? I don't understand that question. Oh, well, I'll explain it to you. It's probably a, a long explanation, but it's got to do with the political interference of independent bodies and the independence of the Office of the Garda Commissioner, which is a little bit like the independence of the Office of the CEO of the HSC. It would be inappropriate because it would be seen no, as political no, no, interference no, no, no. and a way of gaining popularity and support for the minister as a, a politician and for her party, and there would be objections across the board. Here we're talking about something far more serious, which requires clinical uh, expertise, medical expertise, and people who know what they're talking about when it comes to human health and uh, uh, and human life. Uh, and the minister is telling the experts in the HSE what to do, undermining them in public, usurping their authority, which has led to the resignation no, I, of Paul Reid. There's complete, a completely different situation there. There is no provision whatsoever in the justice legislation that allows the minister for justice to tell the Gardaí what to do. There is provision in the health legislation which allows the Minister of Health to tell the HSE what to do. Um, so this, they're completely different situations and for good reason. But the, the, principle, the principle is exactly the same, Minister. It's not. It's utterly different. You're talking about a police force that has to be completely independent for the functioning of the state. It's, it's totally different. In fact, and the legislation is totally different. So they're not comparable at I know, all. but when the HSE are, are, are telling politicians you're putting lives at risk and the politicians are ignoring it, uh, it sounds like the same thing to most of us, right? w- whether it's enshrined in legislation or not. It's also the case that the consultants in Drada who've raised genuine concerns, and I respect them, have also said that it's best to do this. So, so, so they've raised concerns, but their concerns are really in the context of this actually happening. Mm. And let's be clear as well, because I think this needs to be clear. The vast majority of people who currently go to Navin Emergency Department will still be able to use it after this happens. We're talking about the most critically ill patients, yeah. most of whom, are, sorry, a lot of whom already go to Drada. And in fact, with this new rehabilitation um, unit opening, will be coming back to Navin after yeah. they get their surgery to do rehabilitation. So this hospital is going to be growing and growing and growing and has been growing and growing and growing. Well, maybe people and those may, may, need to be put to, may, into and Sinn Féin. Well, maybe people would have been more aware of it if the minister hadn't gagged the staff well, in the hospital. Look, the minister can answer that for himself. I, I took the opportunity last summer to ring Jerry McIntyre yep. directly. You remember? I was oh, I remember it well. And, and I challenged him as to why yeah. he hadn't done and, and you relayed that here on the programme. I remember it vividly. And you said that Jerry McEntee wanted to come on uh, uh, and talk about it on LMFM and in the Mead Chronicle uh, as soon as it, it was viable to do and so. And that was, the, that was yeah. the position. But I think the idea that me as an elected TD would completely dismiss any 
scientist, any consultant, any doctor on an issue yeah. like this and simply say you're wrong, it's wrong. And that's why I don't do that for the draw. I don't pick and choose consultants. Mm. Like but some of the opposition are doing at the moment. Okay. So listen to them all and try and get the best solution for the people of Mead, for the people of Ireland. And like, let's be realistic about this. And I've said this before. All of us have used a variety of hospitals. None of us has only used one hospital in this region, and we're so fortunate for that. I've been in A&E twice as an adult. I went to Dundalk most recently. I went to Nav the time mm. before. That's the reality for a lot of people in this region. We have yeah. a lot of hospitals. Mm. We want to improve them, yeah. and we want to give the best possible health service mm. for the people of this region. Yeah, and I'd say most people listening to us have been in all of the Dublin hospitals. Exactly. Yeah, And I'd say there's a lot of people listening to us who are hoping that no one belonging to them ends up critically ill in Navan in case they die unnecessarily. And I'd say there's a lot of people who are, are hoping that they don't close the emergency department in Navan because people will end up in Drogheda and that won't be safe. Uh, that's, that's, that's not a record for that. That's, that, that's, not a, that, that's not a situation for the minister to stand over. That's damned if you no, do and damned if you he's don't. Not, he's not standing over it because that's why he's asked the HSE to come back very quickly tell him exactly what Drogheda needs. Uh, and I'm confident the resources will be put in there. But also, that huge resources will continue to be put into Navin Hospital as well. And that's the point that gets lost in this entire debate. And a huge amount of uh, resources, more staff, hundreds more staff are in that hospital than yeah, where... No, the main, point, the, the, main, the main point in this debate at the moment is that people are ill-served. Uh, you're damned if you do and damned they if you don't. Be better if, you, if, yeah. if, if you go to Navin, <laughs> good luck to you. Uh, if they close no, it down, no, no. if they close it down, good luck to you. If you go to if you go to Navin critically ill in an emergency situation, good luck to you. If if they close it down and you go to Drogheda instead, good luck to you. Well, look, we've we've got to get this right. We've we we need to listen to scientists, listen to the consultants, get the resources in. We can't have a situation at Limerick. We need to make sure that all of the local hospitals are working in tandem. Uh, that if you're brought to Drogheda uh, for emergency surgery or whatever, that you can be brought back to Navin to recover. That's what we want. This has now been brought to a head and I'm really, really glad and I'm glad the public are getting the facts because this is not about closing Navin Hospital. This whole premise of save Navin Hospital is absolute nonsense. And I'm sorry for using language at the start, but it's just so frustrating. There is no saving of Navin Hospital. It is saved. It's improving. There are hundreds more people working in that hospital than were only a short number of years ago. And that's the fact that it hardly ever gets out. The 24-bed rehabilitation unit is opening this month. There's a new uh, operating theatre open there as well. So there's okay. more uh, people are more, and your, more of your listeners are going to Navin than were ten years ago uh, when 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 this issue first came. Okay, up. Uh, and just uh, for the record, because people will be asking, um, is that why you didn't attend the Save Navin Hospital meeting? Uh, will you be uh, attending uh, the march on Saturday? And if not, what would you say to people who were intending to protest on Saturday? I, look, I mean, I, I've already spoken to some of them that will be going. I, I won't be going. Um, but I wish everyone the best of luck. I said that before. I think everybody has the best interests of the people of me at heart. I think that we're better served by listening to scientists and politicians. I think some of the language from the opposition has been incredibly inflammatory uh, and utterly unnecessary, and I think worrying to people as well, because uh, I think we're best served by, by looking at the reality on the ground for people. How do we improve that as best we can? How do we give the services? How do we give the resources to all of our hospitals? Uh, in this region. So the very best of luck to everybody who's, who's protesting, uh, but you can be damn sure I will be working as hard as I can to get the best resources into all of our hospitals, including that. 
Okay, Minister, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, who's a local Fianna Fáil TD for Meath East. Let me bring you just some of the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Geraldine, thanks for your call. She says Sinn Féin are very much aware of the reality of what is happening on the ground for many people. Families are up the walls worrying about back-to-school costs. It's very unfair that the hard-working families are the ones who are paying for everything the government should be ashamed of uh, themselves, she says. Uh, a text to us uh, this morning uh, from somebody who says, uh, why do you invite people onto the radio and then harangue them because they don't agree with your point of view? I certainly hope that that is not the case. Uh, I would argue the point, uh, because I imagine that the text is about the interview with Johnny Gurk, uh, that this is not a free-for-all. Uh, and that is why we hope you listen to us, that we get to the truth, that we make sure that everybody is fair, we don't allow people to make false claims, we don't allow people to use things as a political football and to take uh, 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 political advantage uh, because of a, a local issue that is uh, important to people. It has to be fair and square and that is why Johnny Gurk was challenged on the programme this morning. Uh, her caller says that's not democracy. Uh, uh, it's either your way or no way. Uh, well, our way is the fair way. Uh, and why hadn't you, Thomas Byrne, on air? Well, the, obviously this came in before that. Uh, thank you, Peter, uh, for your text, uh, as always. Deirdre says it would be a total disaster if they closed the emergency department at Our Ladies. It would mean total gridlock at Drogheda Hospital, which can't cope with the volume of people already coming through its stores. How did the HSE expect the staff at Drogheda to cope? Uh, that seems to be the problem, Deirdre. It would be a total disaster if they close Our Ladies, uh, and it is a total disaster to keep it open. That seems to be exactly the problem, and that is the problem that the Minister is presiding over. It's on Stephen Donnelly's watch, wherever Stephen Donnelly is this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the survey from the Irish League of Credit Unions yesterday was sobering, I suppose, for many of us. So many people struggling uh, to meet uh, the cost of going back to school, going into debt, going to money lenders and ending up owing an extortionate amount of money at the average debt over €300. Euro. Uh, if you are finding it hard to make ends meet, we know that a, a lot of people are, you may be interested in getting some help from the Money Advice and Budgeting Service. Let's speak to Michael Laffey, who's the regional matter manager with MABS in North Leinster. Good morning to you, Michael. And Good morning, thanks Michael. For joining thanks for inviting me on. Uh, how do you help people? Because I think uh, we're all aware of how the cost of living has increased. Uh, we've an inflation rate of about 10% at the moment, and people are, are concerned not just about the situation they're in, but what they're facing into. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. It's very challenging times for people at the moment. I think it's unprecedented. And I think um, what you've said there about MABS um, helping people, a lot of people actually don't realise that MABS is there to help people. It's a state-funded, um, um, confidential, independent and not judgmental service, and it's free to everyone. It stands for MABS, as you said, stands for the Money Advice and Budgeting Service. And I suppose in the context of helping people uh, within the LMFM area, we're in Drogheda, Dundalk and Navan, and the offices are open from 9am to 5pm. But to go um, to your more direct question, <clears throat> what do we do? So I suppose we, we work with people and I'm conscious there's just a limited window of time to give you a summary of it. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. We try and work with people um, in terms of, I suppose, getting a handle on uh, um, 
how they're managing their money. You know, for a lot of people to sit down and actually start looking at money coming in and money coming out, we call it the household budget, that can be hugely overwhelming for people, you know, because it seems like a massive task. Uh, so we always have a structure. It's not about coming in for one meeting. We work with people over a period of time. Um, you, you wouldn't be coming in and getting a resolution after one meeting. We don't have a magic wand, uh, but we try and support people depending on their ability to work with us, I suppose, eating the elephant in, in small bites. So in terms of what do we do, I suppose we start with looking at people's income. Uh, is everybody getting, if they're on social welfare, um, are you getting all your entitlements, you know, perhaps working family payment, medical cards? Uh, if you're in employment, are you getting tax credits? If you're in employment and social welfare, do you know, are you, are you getting all, all income that you can be getting um, or that you're entitled to get? And then I suppose we start working with people then on their outgoings. And uh, we have a, a model, Michael, that sort of prioritises um, what you spend your money on and looking at that. So the first priority for us is always the roof over your head, as we call it. So if you have a mortgage, are you in arrears? Uh, there may be support available through ourselves to access the government to Walia scheme, and that's a scheme for people who are in arrears where we can give them vouchers to attend a personal insolvency practitioner, and they may be able to get an alternative repayment arrangement put in place that would solve their mortgage arrears on their family home. If people are in, say, rent arrears, um, again, we can um, negotiate with landlords and work on trying to get a repayment plan in place. Very often you'll find that the banks and the landlords, once they see that somebody is trying to do something and using a service like ours to advocate on their behalf, uh, they can be more open to getting a a repayment plan in place. we then move, I suppose, Michael, to life East being the next essential for anybody to live. And again, for people who might be in arrears at the moment, um, we do have protocols in place with all of the utility providers where someone comes to MABS in arrears or indeed with a threatened disconnection or, or perhaps even already disconnected. Uh, some of the utility excuse me, companies have hardship funds and we again, we have access where we can uh, make a case to the utility provider to get some of the rears um, uh, written offset through their right. own hardship fund. We can refer people to the SVP, other organisations, to the additional needs payment with the community welfare officer. We have all those sort of pro- mm-hmm. protocols in place. Out of interest, one maybe thing just to flag is we have seen people coming in with electricity bills and, and the costs obviously have increased significantly yeah. and they have assumed or it's because of the fact that the unit rates have gone up because they've been hearing for the last six or eight months so electricity prices are going up and going up but what we've actually established in quite a few cases is they're out of contract so they've lost the discounts that they would have had on their electricity bills right. uh, from when they switched and you know there are discounts still available there up to 30% on unit rates um, uh, for, for switching to another provider okay. so again we look at that with people now, now you know, I absolutely accept that even with that, electricity costs are yeah. massively increased for people. You, you said it's the household budget, but this is like bringing in a, an accountant to look at your household budget well, and make it work well, best for well, you. We don't. We don't like to call ourselves accountants, and that no, can frighten people. You know, okay, people yeah, yeah. This is a very okay. complex yeah. process. A, a money manager, though, to make yeah, your that's, that's to money make money advisor, money advisor, to make your money work yeah. best for you, uh, yes. and to help you negotiate and engage with those who perhaps you're in arrears with. Yes, uh, yes. And I take it that the number of calls are rising in, in line with the number of people who are, are finding it more and more difficult. Correct, absolutely. At the moment, over the last couple of months, um, May and. June have been, say, the busiest months on our helpline since January 2012, you know, so it's evident that people are feeding that pressure. And I suppose one thing, Michael, there on a point made, um, 
people shouldn't feel that they can only come to us when there's a problem, as mm. in that they're now in arrears. We very much work with people and, and would like to work yeah. with people just in terms of managing their money each week before it becomes yeah. a problem. If you're worried about going into the winter, increased utility bills and so on, now perhaps is uh, the time. Uh, Michael, uh, we'll give uh, your phone number now, uh, which is 0818072000, uh, which yeah. people can get off uh, your website, mabs.ie. You're open yeah. Monday the Friday from 9 to 8, 0818072000. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. That's great, Michael. Thank Thank you you very much. Thank you. uh, Michael Laffey, who's the regional manager with MABS in North Leinster. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, an interesting headline uh, this morning about Leo Vratker being set to be elected to Taoiseach in uh, December. Let's speak uh, to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. A very good morning to you, Sean, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. I'd say there's little doubt of that uh, at the moment as things stand, but will he have the numbers come December? <laughs> no, a lot of can change in 24 hours, can't it? And, yep. uh, whatever about one resignation here, 50-odd resignations across the UK makes us uh, seem almost normal politically. <laughs> um, but, yeah, a lot of, uh, I suppose, relief was the, the tone coming out of, of Leo Varadkar in the Fine Gael camp last night, even after Joe McHugh had left, because Leo Varadkar is not going to be prosecuted for leaking a document to a friend of his in the, the NAGP a number of years ago. He's issued a pretty punchy statement this morning, saying that he did no wrong, and while he shouldn't have used an informal person channel to get this information out there. Uh, the allegations made against him uh, that there was anything more than error were totally false. He claimed they were made by sworn political opponents and that those who made the allegations went to extraordinary lengths to publicise them. Their actions were politically motivated and often highly personalised and the tactics and motives of those persons ought to be the subject of some reflections are very much punching out at those uh, critics that he had. But it does solve a big headache for Fine Gael heading into the summer break because mm. there was that open question. Could you elect a Taoiseach who is under criminal investigation and may well be prosecuted. And the answer to that seemingly among a lot of ministers was no, but now it's been put to bed. So his leadership certainly is uh, safe for the time being. Any aspirants, be they the, the, you know, the stall holders of uh, Pascal Donoghue and Simon Coveney, or indeed the more upstarts of Helen McAtee and Simon Harris, will all have to wait their turn and Varadkar will get to reshuffle and sort of have the, the power cards again. I imagine that vindication comes as a great sense of relief to him personally as well because there's a, a lot of pressure on people when they're being investigated like that. I mean, imagine if it was any of us, if you were under investigation and the investigation had gone on as long as it did, it went over longer than a year, then the file had gone to the DPP, I think it was in April or in around that time, so you're waiting a number of months to find out whether or not you're potentially going to be prosecuted and your career could be over. So having that having him cleared, I suppose, and, and confirmed that no prosecution was going ahead, as confident as he might have been that that was going to be the case, and that's certainly what he was saying publicly, certainly have, must be a weight off the shoulders. OK. Uh, Joe McHugh won't run in the next uh, election, so I, I take it there was some surprise that he decided now, as he's going out the door, to vote against the party that he's been so faithful to all of these years and uh, the government that he once was a, a member of. I think a surprise to a lot of us who were watching because the issue had sort of gone off the boil. Joe McHugh had been quite quiet. We knew he'd been working behind the scenes with both Minister Darrell O'Brien, Minister uh, Charlie McConlogue and others on this scheme and on the second redress package, the one that was approved through the Dáil last night. But when you actually take a step back, maybe not all that surprising that he has voted against the, uh, the government. He expressed that he had quite a few issues with this, would have let that be known privately as well to the party and ultimately it was something that he just couldn't do. So... Uh, 
quite aside from the fact that he isn't running again, that he doesn't want to be a TD anymore and intends to spend more time with his family. Uh, I think he just ultimately felt having engaged with a lot of his constituents who are really affected by this, that he just couldn't support them. So uh, he will likely mm. vote the go- with the government in opposition on quite a few issues, says he hasn't made his mind up on the budget yet, but certainly it is a big loss and it leaves the arithmetic well be- beyond tight. Mm. But it, it shows how big an issue this is in Donegal. It leaves the government one short of uh, the majority. Uh, and I, I take it, uh, that there will still continue to be questions for TDs in Donegal uh, because this is taken so seriously. And as Joe McHugh was saying in his contribution last night when he said he was going to vote against the government, many of his constituents are in a, an impossible situation where they'll have to come up with twenty or €30,000 to rebuild their homes and that's money that they just don't have. Uh, and I, I take it that there'll be uh, a lot of focus on the other government TD, Charlie McConnellogue now who is now the only one of the five TDs in Donegal who actually supports the scheme of taxes and will, I reckon, be in something of a fight for his seat. He is popular in Donegal. Fianna Fáil has always done well in Donegal. Um, but I think he's going to be in a very difficult position because of this with all the others now lined up on the other side of it. I think one of the issues that Joe McHugh had was the timing that this was given. It was only given two hours last night, one of five bills that were forced through in five hours as the government tried to clear the decks ahead of the summer holidays, something a, a lot of people in the opposition were about given the seriousness of the Micah redress scheme but also a bill that went through last night on data retention relating to the Graham Dwyer uh, murder case and his appeal indeed uh, of that so there is go there is a lot of unrest there is a lot of unhappiness uh, and I think it is one of those ones that if left alone uh, could be a fester Sinn Féin is, is targeting three seats in Donegal they've done that before and it's ended up disastrously for them with their losing one of their two but they've got Pierce Doherty and Porrick and Cochrane both in very strong positions and we'll be looking to add a third maybe at the expense of, of uh, Charlie McConnell, maybe at the expense of Fine Gael, because while Joe McHugh has been very popular and has a big popular uh, personal vote, mm-hmm. there is maybe that necessarily that same holdover for whoever runs in his place of the party. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, the situation uh, across uh, the pond, uh, Sean. Uh, Boris Johnson is doing a Donald Trump, it seems. Will he last the day? No, uh, he won't. And uh, it seems very clearly that he is going to resign today. He's going to make a statement at some point outside of Downing Street and confirm his resignation after all of the um, I suppose the pressure and the extraordinary scenes that we've seen over the last 24 hours, what really seems to have done it this morning is the, the new Chancellor and the new Education Minister, who he appointed less than 36 hours ago to replace people who resigned, both coming out and saying that Boris Johnson should now resign. It's a, a, a situation mm. I've never seen before. <laughs> you get hired for a job and less than 36 hours later you stick the knife at the person who hired you. Uh, top that, Brandon Lewis going this morning as well, the Northern Ireland Secretary. I think the number of resignations has either topped or is close to topping 50 in about 24 hours. His position really is untenable within the party. It was only a matter really of changing the rules for how they can get rid of Boris Johnson because he survived obviously the motion of confidence mm. last month and uh, they need to change the rules to hold another one within the year. He's usually safe for a year but I think he has finally accepted now after all of the turmoil of the last while he isn't going to be able to stay stay on and hang on with a government that can't function. There are now no ministers left in the education department in the UK. It is literally not functioning. Mm. So there is no way you can kind of link that government on. One of the big questions, though, becomes and seems to be from the reporting in the UK that he is going to stay on as prime minister until a successor is elected, however long that takes. It could be August, it could be September, or sometime in the autumn, 
by the time that leadership contest is done. Mm. And that's a very long time for, for someone like Boris Johnson in particular to hang around. There's a lot of stuff that he could do in that time, a lot of mischief he could make in that time. So I'm not sure that the Conservative MPs would be necessarily happy. Okay. Yeah. I, I miss Donald Trump. I always got a, a great laugh out of him for the wrong reasons. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Have I Got News For You and I'll miss old Boris, it has to be said. Uh, again, for the wrong reasons. Uh, but it does look as though his political sword uh, awaits him. Uh, thank well, you indeed. Uh, it is, it's, a very, it's a great big shame that there uh, there is no streaming service at the minute that's carrying the thick of it because uh, even the writers of that I don't think could have scripted the last 24 hours. <laughs> I don't think so. Sean, thank you indeed. Uh, as always, that's our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, inflation last month was 9.6%. The central bank uh, this morning is suggesting uh, that this month it'll go over 10%. And how do you live on the money that you're earning if the cost of living increases by 10%? Indeed, what is the living wage if the cost of living is running at about 10%? You may remember earlier in the week we were speaking with Michael Taft of the Living Wage Technical Group and asking him what, in fact, is the living wage in reality now. If it's set at 12.90 and you add on 10%, Uh, Does that bring it to 13, 14 euro or what do people need to live on? Uh, Let's speak uh, to Kieran Nugent, who's an economist with NERI, the Nevin Economic Research Institute. And Kieran has been writing about specifically this in detail this week. A very good morning to you, Kieran, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. The living wage uh, should be the amount of people that working people have as income that would allow them some of the basics that you would expect to be able to afford if you're working. Things like a holiday, going to the cinema, maybe going out for a couple of drinks, being able to afford new clothes, not being worried about turning on the heat and so on. But that's not necessarily how it's calculated, is it? Well, um, I actually also sit on the living wage technical group. So um, at the moment, that's how we calculate it. And that's what the um, idea behind it is, that you look at the basic cost. And it really is basic cost of living. Like within it is a is a €47 a week budget for, for food for, for a single adult, which I think is very, you know, minimal. Um, and a savings of, of ten euro. So it comes to it's actually based on a thirty nine hour full time week, mm. and so it's actually five hundred three euro a week, which is, is is basically the living wage. Now we've had announcements in the last month or two um, that this government plans, or is at least at least plans to set out a, a timeline for introducing what they are calling a living wage. Um, but they've defined it differently and it's not related to the cost of living. So they're defining it as 60% of, of the median wage, which they calculate at the moment is about 12 uh, 17 an hour, which is, you know, it's an increase on, on the minimum wage. It's a good thing, but there's a, a long horizon. They, they, they plan to bring it in. I'm sure if we have, as you mentioned there, 10% inflation for any kind of sustained period, then that 12, 17 won't, won't look much different to the, to the 10, 50 that is currently the minimum wage. So there's about a six or 7% gap between their estimate and the current estimate. But as you mentioned again, 
that the the estimate comes out in summer. So the 2022 estimate incorporating the last year of inflation has not been published yet. That should should be probably coming out by September. And as you alluded to there, there there will probably be um, a significant add-on to the current 1290 with with, with the cost of living. Uh, And uh, the government uh, approach to looking at this will, uh, as you say in your article uh, this week, will in fact just be a higher minimum wage. Yeah, that's that's what I was arguing, um, because it's not based on the cost of living. So it actually won't, you know, you could be on 1290 one year and say, you know, for, just, for, just for a thought experiment, everybody's wages freeze. And because it's pegged to a certain, um, you know, spot on the distribution of wages, if inflation goes up by 10%, mm. you know, the, 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 uh, your, your living wage won't change. Right, and so the cost of living has gone up by ten percent, but your living wage. So the, that's a scenario that could happen in the future. Yeah. And the living wage technicals will like look at the nitty gritty um, um, cost of living and add it up that way. So it's it's you know it's better than what we have at the minute, but it's it's certainly not um, the living wage as 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 the you know as it's defined and the, the kind of spirit of it and where, mm. where it comes from a minimum essential standard of living. It has to be put into context in terms of affordability, because you could be earning a hundred euro an hour and still not be able to afford to turn on the heat or. Uh, by uh, basic food for your family because of uh, the price of uh, things. It reminds me of the 1930s uh, and the inflation rate in Germany at the time and people bringing home wheelbarrows of cash uh, because uh, the cost of living had gone through the roof and their wages meant nothing. Well, hopefully we won't be getting there <laughs> anyway. Not, no. um, I, I, I would be, you know, it's, it's, we're going to hit 10%. Mm. This year, uh, hopefully, the international situation, um, you know, there, there, there are solutions to that. But I, there's no, I, I'm not sure I see any scenario with hyperinflation like we saw in the 30s. Thank, thank yeah. God. No, I, I, yeah. I, I suppose I, I'm just making the point that you can uh, only buy what you can afford, and it doesn't matter what you're earning. If you're earning uh, through the roof, uh, if it's not enough uh, when you go to pay, yeah. uh, you just don't have enough, and that's uh, the bottom line. Uh, and there's so many things feeding into this, uh, but energy, of course, uh, seems uh, to be the biggest problem and that may get a lot worse as we go into the winter. Yeah, well, hopefully not. But um, the, um, the and, and that's why it's so important to have a living wage that is connected to the cost of living. Because otherwise, you know, the, 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 there's about a twenty percent gap between the minimum wage as it is and the living wage, and a good chunk of Irish workers earn less than the living wage. Mm. So, you know, it's in the name. If you if you're if you're on less than the living wage, then you're going to be struggling to meet your bills, and you're either going to be dependent on family members, or you know, a second earner, or on the state. So you know, we see a lot more um, the share of people in receipt of, say, the housing assistance payment. You know, over fifty percent of them are now workers, mm. and that grew really quickly during the cost. Of, there was a cost of living crisis. Um, before 2020, it's just it wasn't really picked up in headline inflation, but for certain groups, specifically renters. So if uh, yeah, if, if this wage doesn't reflect those living costs, then the state just has to intervene um, to stop 
homelessness, to stop poverty, to stop deprivation, and so that you know families can send their kids to school and uh, and feed them. And you've you, you've eleven basics uh, that we should all be able to afford. Uh, that working people certainly should be able to afford, and uh, therefore should receive uh, the living wage. And if uh, they can't afford two of them, uh, you uh, consider them to be suffering material deprivation, and that uh, relates to almost one in five people in this country. Yeah, it, it dropped a little bit, and we'll see now. There's, um, you know, th- we've had obviously two strange years, and um, just before the the pandemic, it actually increased in 2019, which was a very good year in a lot of other economic indicators. The share of households unable to afford basic goods it, it increased. Now it's fallen. Um, there's a new time, you know, not to get into technical issues, but there's a new time series, basically a new new estimate, and it's slightly lower. It's, it's about fifteen percent, um, but that that was counting a time when there was still significant government um, uh, employment supports in place in 2021 with with PUP etc. Um, so on top of inflation and the removal of those supports. We're, you know, it's it, there are plenty of um, storms on the horizon. Let's say um, in terms of employment, in terms of buying for your book, your wages, etc. From between now and at least Christmas, is there any argument for a minimum wage below that of the living wage, uh, so that young people can take up employment and will live comfortably because of the household income that they're in? Well, yeah, I mean, there are arguments there, but we're, you know, we're in a situation where household formation has completely changed over the last 10 or 15 years. People are having to, forced to live with their parents for longer and longer. They're putting off having kids, you know, they're having less kids. And those, you know, those arguments apply to low-wage sectors. And really what the NERI is trying to stress is that you know, we shouldn't be focusing on the hospitality and tourism, etc. We should be um, probably using the state to try and invest in more sustainable, mid to high income jobs into the future. Hospitality is, you know, it's 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 low wage, it's precarious. No, you, there's very few careers in it. That, you know, for secure, long term careers where you could buy a house or something like that and, and have a family. You know. Um, so from our perspective, we think that the, the, the whole, in that respect, the development model should be looked at again and we should be putting more money into, you know, say areas like retrofitting the housing stock to, you know, bring down our, our, our reliance on, on, on this oil that's driving inflation um, and on R&D and in, in, in green energy to, to um, you know, two, two birds with one stone and, and help us on our transition to the to the low carbon economy which we're, we're, we're trailing in European terms you know Okay yeah. interesting you say that because uh, I think we'll be hearing about nuclear power uh, being defined as green energy shortly on the programme but uh, we'll leave it there for sure, the moment yeah. Kieran thank you indeed for joining All us right, Thank you Kieran Nugent is an economist uh, with the Nevin Economic Research Institute or NERI Now, thanks to Carmel, who's been in touch with us. And Carmel says we need our representatives to advocate for what we have a right to, not refusing to acknowledge it. The situation we find ourselves in is due to the fact that decisions have been made over many years which ignored recommendations and the essential decision implied by the Lennis report. This is a report uh, that had to do with 
the location of the regional hospital and all of the reasons that that should have been in Navan uh, and something that we've spoken about on the programme before. Uh, Carmel goes on to say the people of Meath deserve a health service, increased capacity is needed all across the northeast of the country as stated by the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. Bernie says the main deciding factor in any, emer- in any emergency is proximity to the nearest ED where they are brought for treatment depends on where the person is at the time of the emergency. Bernie is all in favour of Navin becoming a medical assessment unit. The paramedics have excellent training. If Navin's A&D is not fit for purpose, then it should be closed, she says. Mick wants to know how Thomas Byrne can back the plans to close the emergency department. Excuse me. Uh, he says, how can he back that when no other hospital in the region has the capacity to cater for all of the extra patients who will need treatment? Navin Hospital needs to be upgraded, not downgraded. Uh, I think Thomas Byrne is saying uh, he doesn't back the plans because he feels that the other hospitals don't have the capacity. Uh, but he's not uh, happy with uh, the idea that Navin is unsafe either if that makes sense, Mick. Uh, Paddy Duffy says, Bojo's premiership was never going to end any other way. He's a buffoon, a ridiculous but amusing person, a clown, says Paddy. Uh, Somebody else says, achieving a living wage will not help anyone because businesses and so on will will, will just up their prices. Uh, Again, if we get more, they take more, says a Dublin listener. Thank you. Claire Mead says, good morning, Michael. Thomas Byrne is not a doctor. Upgrade and be done with it. I think she means upgrade Navin and be done with it. Leave it open. The Lord's Hospital cannot cope. Give some credit to the people who use these services. When did politicians care, Michael? Shower them uh, with your good questions, she says. Thanks, Claire. Uh, My question for you, Claire, I think this morning is, are you a doctor? Uh, because there are doctors who are saying close it. I, I, I know you don't want me to ask you that. I know, I know. Uh, Margaret says, Minister Donnelly, Mr McEntee, or anyone else in the HSE for that matter, or in government for that matter, say what hospitals in this country are 100%, 100% safe to go to. They can't say that. Why isn't there an audit done of all of these hospitals and the results then published? How can they come out and say that Navin is unsafe and won't say how safe every other hospital is. We've heard from 17 consultants in the Lourdes, so let uh, the HSE uh, tell us about all of the other hospitals and if they're safe or not. Thank you, Margaret, as always, for your message. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, the European Parliament has voted in favour of a proposal that came from uh, the Commissioner Maid McGuinness. Uh, and it means that under new EU rules uh, that they'll be labelling investments in gas and nuclear power plants as climate friendly. Let's uh, speak uh, to Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey who's on uh, the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, you voted uh, for these climate friendly measures. Well, basically what we voted for, Michael, is for a, to allow these to be considered as transition fuels over the next, we'll say, number, to be honest, it's the next number of decades, because I suppose that the least worst scenario that's considered versus, let's say, coal or oil, where we're trying to remove carbon out of the atmosphere, that, if you like, particularly in the case of, let's say, gas, the, the, the requirement is that it's only it's be fully transferred over to the like of hydrogen by 2035, mm. and the infrastructure has to be spec for hydrogen by 2035. So we voted to, to provide for a transition from one to the other, 
as opposed to which has been labelled in the media a lot that it's it voted in as green. It's not that it's green, it's that we have to recognise we can't deliver green energy straight away. We can, or not to the scale we need it. Yeah, but in the search for clean, green energy, uh, you've decided uh, that climate-friendly ways of providing energy in the interim, as you say, are gas and nuclear power. Well, to take both of them one at a time, I suppose. In the case of gas, like a, the reality is of the fossil fuel, it's, it's considered to be the least polluting. And uh, the infrastructure that's been put that would be invested in would have to be capable of taking the like of hydrogen, which would be a green energy down the road. And so, in terms of gas, that's the in- intention is to, to, if you like, transition to uh, green energy in the future. Mm. In the case of nuclear, why, 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 suppose, why can't new builds in this country have gas uh, uh, power? Because we don't. To, in order to, to new builds in this country of gas. Because I suppose the reality of this is, in individual cases, you can look at uh, heat pumps and various things like that that can that can deliver. Yeah, we're told in, they don't work. Uh, so, so, so our our, our law our, our laws at odds with European laws, is it? No, I wouldn't say our laws at odds with European law. The reality is, we have to look at various situations. It's not just this isn't voted through simply for an Irish context. Mm. I've said in numerous times that our our future and our potential is in offshore wind, and we have the potential to deliver an enormous amount of electricity in offshore wind that this can solve most of Ireland's energy problems or all of Ireland's energy problems. Well, this this this, this won't become European law until the majority of European countries uh, vote in favour of it, uh, or uh, actually the opposite. Of the unless the majority don't vote in favour of it, uh, 20 of uh, 27 countries, uh, if there's 20 countries that block it, uh, it can be blocked. Do you think Ireland will vote against it? I don't think, I don't, I can't comment for the government, but I think Ireland probably won't vote against it in that I think that... You think the Irish, the Irish doll, the Irish parliament will vote in favour of gas and nuclear power? I think uh, there's no suggestion, and I think been through this with you before, Michael, in terms of uh, looking at the overall picture. There's no suggestion that we're going to, in any time soon, build a nuclear plant in Ireland. It's just not going to happen. It's not a priority. It's absolutely not on the agenda. Mm. The reality is, we're talking about we have an interconnect with the UK where we're benefiting from nuclear power. There's talk of a new interconnect to France where 80% of the power is nuclear. So whether we like it or not, we're dependent on nuclear power. And it's not only about the development of nuclear power. The other side of all this is they, they, it's important that we ensure the safety of nuclear plants across Europe and the safe storage of... Well, what if we don't like it? Well, what if we don't, don't we send people to Europe? Don't we elect people to go to Europe uh, to represent us? If we don't like it, uh, should we not have people in Europe who represent us? If we don't like nuclear power, should Irish MEPs not vote against nuclear power? We're voting to try and move to a, a, a greener environment in general, to renewable energy. No, hold on a second. You said whether we like it or not. Uh, I, I, I think it's no, true no, that no, most no. Irish people don't like nuclear power. Should Irish representatives in the European Parliament not vote against nuclear power? Well, the reality is we're not voting in favour of nuclear power. What we're voting in favour of is investment to make sure, for one, the nuclear power that's there already is safe. Number two, that the storage of nuclear waste is also safe. And number three, that in, in terms of decarbonizing, uh, decarbonizing our, our energy infrastructure, that in terms of difficult choices that have to be made, the reality is nuclear is already there and we have to make sure it's safe. Do you think that represents 
uh, the people you represent, that the people that Mairead McGuinness was voted to represent uh, because uh, you've taken over her seat because she's become yeah. a commissioner. Do, 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 you, do you believe that you're representing the people uh, that you're there to represent? Because I, I have to put it to you that most people in this country are opposed to nuclear power. I am fully opposed to nuclear power. I'd hate to see nuclear power come to Ireland. That's the first point. But you voted to label it as a climate-friendly way of uh, providing energy. I didn't vote to label it. No, I voted to label it as as a transition into a transition scenario. Climate-friendly. The the nuclear power that is there already has to be managed and maintained safely. The storage of the waste has to be managed correctly. And in the medium term, we can't just turn off all the nuclear power tomorrow morning and replace it with green energy. We quite simply don't have the green energy yet. But absolutely, in the long term, nuclear power should not be a part of our long term intentions. But in the short term, when we need to decarbonise, we need to be clear about. And I, I don't wish to. I, I don't wish to get into a situation about, let's say, a, a, to be lecturing. And I'm not. I don't mean to lecture. I'm opposed to nuclear power. But we have difficult choices to make, Michael, and that's that's the hard reality of this. And we have to make sure the nuclear power that's there is safe on one side. And on the other side, we, we have an absolute priority to stop global warming, to decarbonise our energy. Bar- Barry Andrews, a Fianna Fáil MEP, voted against it after being contacted by his constituents who were opposed to, to nuclear power. Uh, did you have any such and, contacts? And Billy Keller, who's a Fianna Fáil MEP, voted in favour of it. So, like, it, it, it's every side of it. Like, I've, I've had contact, there's no doubt about it. I've had discussions with various people about it. And it's not that I'm in favour of nuclear power at all. It's a recognition that we have nuclear power across Europe. And if I was to give a choice between a coal and oil versus nuclear, in the interest of decarbonising the environment, I'd like to keep nuclear... Look at the German situation, where they've shut down their nuclear power. They're now importing fossil fuels from, from, from Russia. You have the fossil fuel element to that, which is, is global warming mm. impact. You also have the scenario uh, of where your dependency on the like of Russia for, for energy. Mick Wallace and Grace O'Sullivan said you're greenwashing gas and nuclear. Mick Wallace uh, said uh, that well, you're categorising them uh, as renewables and no one in their right mind could uh, agree with that. Grace O'Sullivan said uh, that you should be stopping this moral and economic madness. That's that's for this suggestion that we're branding as green is not the case. The situation is there's nuclear there already. You're looking at a transition away from that to renewable energies. It's just what is practical in terms of how we can deliver that. And I suppose that's it's a different argument where we can be a, a, we can take a, a purest view of this that we just want to get rid of all nuclear in the morning. Are you not sure you can account? Are you sure you and the other Fine Gael, uh, MEPs aren't just doing what your German masters in uh, the European group, the EPP, have told you to do, rather than doing what your consist- constituents ha- have uh, elected you to do? We have no intention of building any nuclear plants here in Ireland. Germany are closing down the nuclear plants, so it's not as if it was the German agenda on this. The reality is, if anything, it's the French are the ones that are pushing this more so than the Germans. Well, was it the French oh, that pushed you? No, nobody pushed me. As far as I'm concerned, we won't we won't build any nuclear plants in Ireland. Our future is in renewable energies. I'm very much in favour of that. The sad reality is we've had nuclear for a long number of years. We have to ensure that those plants remain safe. We have to ensure that the storage of that nuclear waste is managed correctly. Mm-hmm. And we have to ensure that we can ma- transition onto renewable energies in a, in a, in a way that, that doesn't 
caused complete chaos. If you look in Germany and if you look in, 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 in Austria, for instance, they've scaled down the like of... The, they, they, they've tried to green their, their nuclear or their, their energy in general uh, very quickly. And in reality, they've both taken U-turns in the last couple of months okay. to start burning coal mm. in Austria and Germany. Well, Actually, this, this, this there's obviously... A there's a transition. Just this will mind. obviously support that position. We have to go on. Yeah, this will obviously there's support them. We have to go on. This will obviously support them in deciding no, not no, to wind them down. Of course it will. This is not supporting coal. It's not supporting oil. It's it's about getting the transition. No, it'll support them in deciding not to wind down their nuclear plants. It'll support them. It will. It, it's better than them come back to, yeah. to starting mining coal. Okay. Are we go. Do we want to go back to mining coal and burning coal all over all over European cities with the smog and the, the emissions and and all that? Coal is well recognised as being the dirtiest of all the all the fuels, okay. and, and oil is second worst. And we're to get away from them. I, I am absolutely. Let, don't try and put words in my mouth to suggest I'm in favour of nuclear. I'm no, 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 no. I'm saying you voted. You voted. Challenges. I didn't say you were in favour of it. I said you voted in favour of it being used in the transition. Yes, I'll okay. accept that. It All has right. to be used in the transition. Okay, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. I have to leave it there. We're out of time. But that's uh, Colin Markey, Finnegale MEP. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, they're all saying that Boris Johnson is going to resign today. Why is that? Uh, Well, he's in a lot of trouble, there's no doubt about it. Let's get uh, some of uh, the background to the story behind the controversy and hear some of uh, the debate between the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition in Westminster yesterday. Mr Speaker, last week a government minister was accused of sexually assaulting a young man. I want to quote the victim's account. He says, he grabbed my ass and then he slowly moved his hand down in front of my groin. I froze. I accept that's not easy listening, but it's a reminder to all those propping up this Prime Minister just how serious the situation is. He knew the accused Minister had previously committed predatory behaviour, but he promoted him to a position of power anyway. Why? Prime Minister, Mr Speaker, that individual, the uh, old member for Tamworth, no longer has the Conservative whip. He no longer has a a job. He he is no longer, as soon as I was made aware of the the allegation that he has just read out, uh, Mr Speaker, the complaint that was made, uh, he lost uh, his... Um, he lost his status as a Conservative MP. Well, there was that, and that was followed by a lot of old bladder from Boris about how he abhors bullying and the abuse of power, etc., etc., etc. None of that explains why he promoted him in the first place. And we've heard it all before. We know who he really is. Before he was found out, he's reported to have said he's handsy. That's the problem. Pincher by name, pincher by nature. Now, has the Prime Minister ever said words to that effect? And I'm not asking for bluster and half-truth. We've all had enough of that. Yes or no? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, I'm not going to trivialise what happened. Or so he said. And then came what could only be described as... The bluster and half-truth Starmer said he hoped he wouldn't hear from Boris. The PM spoke about the important work he was doing in government today, uh, but he, he did concede... 
It is true. It is true that the com a complaint was uh, raised when he was in the Foreign Office and the matter was uh, resolved. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true, Mr. Speaker, that it was ra raised with me. I greatly regret that he continued uh, in office. And therein lies uh, the problem for the Prime Minister today. No denial. And he says the matter was resolved when he means it was upheld. Exactly. And, and they're all sitting there as if this is normal behaviour. So it would seem a sexual predator was promoted very different than the way his victim was treated. When that young man reported his attack to a government whip, she asked him if he was gay. When he said that he was, she replied, that doesn't make it straightforward. That comment will sicken anyone who's experienced sexual assault and then be made to feel like they somehow asked for it exactly. or who worry that prejudice means their complaint won't be taken seriously. Will he apologise for those disgraceful comments on behalf of his government? I've already said uh, that I regret very much that uh, the uh, member for Tamworth continued to hold office after the complaint was made against him in the in the Foreign Office, and uh, it was it was resolved in the Foreign Office. His apology was accepted, but clearly that was not enough. And in hindsight, Mr. Speaker, I should have realised that he would not. He would. He would not change. Yeah, 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 yeah. Plenty of regret and so on, but the apology that Starmer was looking for was not forthcoming. Doesn't that just sum him up? Awful behaviour, unacceptable in any walk of life. It's there for all to see, but he ignores it. It was the same when his ally was on the take from the lobbyists. It was the same when his Home Secretary was bullying staff. It was the same when taxpayers' money was being abused. And it was the same when he and his mates parted their way through lockdown. Anyone quitting now after defending all that hasn't got a shred of integrity. Yeah. Mr Speaker, isn't this the first recorded case of the sinking ships fleeing the rat? He talks about... He, he should hear what he's not saying about him, uh, Mr. Speaker. Uh, he, he talks about he talks about in integrity. Integrity, integrity, indeed. Uh, Boris had many examples of why he would question the integrity of uh, the leader of the Labour Party. He voted. He voted forty-eight times to overturn the will of the British people and take us back into the European Union. And by the way, listening to his muddled speech the other day, that is exactly uh, what he would do again. Yes, it seems Boris Johnson's argument was that the Labour leader wants to undo Brexit, or at least that was one of the points he made in his defence for promoting a sex predator. What a pathetic spectacle. Exactly. The, the, the dying act of his political career is to parrot that nonsense. Yep. Yeah. And as for those who are left, only in office, because no one else is prepared to debase themselves any longer, the charge of the lightweight brigade. <laughs> Have some self-respect. Mr Speaker, for a week, He's had them defending his decision to promote a sexual predator. Every day, the lines he's forced them to take have been untrue. First, that he was unaware of any allegation. Untrue. Then, he was unaware of any specific allegation. Untrue. Then, he was unaware of any serious specific allegation. And now, he wants them to go out 
and say that he simply forgot <laughs> that his whip was a sexual predator. Anyone with anything about them would be long gone from his front bench. Yeah. In the middle of a crisis, doesn't the country deserve better yes. than a Z-list cast of nodding dogs? Yeah. Right. You may think, how could anybody face that down? But Boris was defined. He will stay on. Well, Mr Speaker, uh, it's, when, it's exactly when, when times are tough and when the country faces pressures on uh, the economy uh, and pressures on their budgets, Mr Speaker, and when we had the biggest war in Europe for 80 years, Mr Speaker, uh, that, is when, that is exactly the moment that you'd expect a government uh, to continue with its work. All right, the important points uh, as Boris saw them, but uh, Mr Johnson was reminded why there are so many people who now question his leadership. I started this session with a quote from the young victim in all this how he froze when he was attacked. When I was prosecuting rapists, I heard that from victims all the time. Mm. Victims said they froze because it's not about sex, it's about power. And the power the disgraced government minister had was handed to him by that prime minister. And he's only in power because he's been propped up for months by a corrupted party defending the indefensible. So it's no longer a case about swapping the person at the top. Isn't it clear? The only way the country can get the fresh start it deserves is by getting rid of a lot of them. Boris tried to talk over the boobs. The opposition waved him goodbye and it seems as though it's bye-bye, Mr Johnson. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.